0: Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, I want to welcome everyone uh, to uh, tonight, uh, to tonight's roundtable, Shaping uh, America's Future. Uh, it's great to have you with us tonight. Um, my name is Peter Trubowitz. Uh, I'm a professor uh, in the International Relations Department um, and the director of the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting this all-star um, lineup. Uh, We've got a lot of ground to cover. A lot has happened in the United States. Um, We don't have much time to do it. Uh, So I'm going to try to get really right down to business quickly here. Um, I'm going to start by introducing our panelists. So uh, first to my immediate left right here is uh, Leah Wright-Rigger, who's an Associate Professor of Public Policy at Harvard's uh, Kennedy School of Government. Sitting next to Leah is Gideon Rackman, uh, the Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator for the Financial Times. Um, Sitting next to Gideon is uh, Linda Yu, who's a visiting professor at LSE Ideas um, and the chair of the LSE Economic Diplomacy Commission. And down at the end, last but certainly not least, is Larry Jacobs, who's a professor of political science and the chair of the Center uh, for the Study of Politics at the University of Minnesota. It's great to have all of you here tonight. Thanks for joining us. A word or two about the game plan. So what we're going to do for the first, who oh, I don't know, maybe about 25 minutes, um, we're going to have a discussion up here. I've asked each of them to give us their kind of two minutes, like a two-minute drill, two-minute take on what happened yesterday um, in the United States with with Super Tuesday, Um, and and then I will put a few questions to to the panel, um, and then we will open it up for discussion. Uh, and I will try to get in as many questions as possible. I suspect there'll be a lot of questions. I'll probably try to group them and give the panelists an opportunity to uh, to respond. Um, a couple of other things. So this event is being live-streamed to LSE's many chapters in the United States, um, so be on your best behavior. Um, it, is, um, it is also being... Um, live tweeted. Uh, we do everything here at the uh, U.S. Center, uh, so it is being live tweeted. And if you want to, you know, reach out to Donald Trump tonight, just go ahead and tweet. You know, make his day. So. Um, and finally, uh, let me just ask all of you to put your phones to silent because this is being, there'll be a podcast as, as well, uh, but don't turn off your phones. Um, and last but not least, you should have a clicker. Everybody has to have a clicker. Yours looks different than mine, but that's good because at the very end, you're going to have a chance to cast a ballot. Well, not really, but you will have an opportunity to vote, on those candidates that are still standing, um, and, um, uh, and we've had to update, and I don't know if we've updated enough, uh, because there's been a couple last minute changes, but, um, uh, but at any rate. Um, so a couple of other things just to kind of maybe say a word about what happened, just to kind of bring everybody up to speed. So there were 14 states up for grabs last night, plus the territory of American Samoa. (laughs) Joe Biden won nine of those states, including two that Bernie won handily in 2016, that is Minnesota and Oklahoma. Sanders won three states last night and is leading in the delegate-rich state of California right now. That has not been, AP called it, but it's still, not everybody else has called it. Anyway, that's still up in the air, and I think as of this moment, Maine is still up and open, uh, and has not been called. Mike Bloomberg did win American Samoa, which just goes to show, if you spend a half a billion, you can win something. (laughs) So, um, everybody is calling this a, two-candidate uh, race right now. One of the reasons is that because of the projected delegate count. This is not the actual delegate count, but once everything plays out in Texas and in, especially in California, uh, that it will look something like this. This is what the expectation is. Um, and uh, the U.S. Center also put together for you uh, and we will leave this up a summary of the exit polls. Uh, the crack team at the US Center got a lot of the stuff in, not everything. There are a lot of takeaways here. The panelists probably will refer to some of them. I will just flag two before we get started. The first is that it is very clear that there was a whole lot of strategic voting going on in the United States yesterday. A lot of fast-breaking movement here towards Joe Biden. Even in Bernie Sanders' home state of Vermont, that happened. Um, And so that is the first thing. The other thing that is, uh, there are many things to point out here, but this Super Tuesday reinforced the perceptions and the reality of the age gap Uh, that exists in in voting right now, the stark age gap between Biden and and Sanders, not between them personally, but between their supporters, um, which is likely to be more of an issue for Bernie going forward. Why? Because one of the things we know from some polling that was done by the Edison Research Group yesterday is that Young people are not turning out in record numbers. And in fact, across all of the states that voted last night, the numbers were no better than they were in 2016 in terms of the youth vote share of the electorate. So that's that's significant, especially because a lot of old people are voting. And they are voting. They're not voting for Sanders. So that's a relevant thing. OK, I've asked each of our panelists to. Um, Start us off with a short two-minute uh, summary. Leah, what's your takeaway? Oh, my gosh. You don't want me to start with you? No, but I don't want to start with you. Do you uh, can I start down at the other end? Yeah.
1: Larry. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so um, i got three things I want to tell you very quickly. The first is I think we need to level set what is meant by the word win because this is probably the only part of American <laughs> politics that follows the proportional representation idea. These delegates will be shared in all these states. Uh, That's not winner take all. There's not winner take all in the Democratic primary. That means that uh, we're gonna see Biden and Sanders mostly sharing the delegates. It's not gonna be a breakaway. Second point uh, on the first slide on the delegate count, um, each to win the nomination, you must have a majority. It's not just who's ahead, who has the plurality. So this is going to lead almost, well I would say likely, um, uh, 538 says it's three out of five uh, probability that there will be a contested convention, which doesn't mean that the, the delegates contest, fight each other, it means that there's not a majority and after the second ballot it's open and then there's going to be a flow of over 700 superdelegates representing the the party as a working uh, operation, those in in government running the party. So this is going to be a long process. Don't expect this to be wrapped up soon. It'll almost certainly, in my view, go to July uh, and the convention. Second point, um, what happened last night was a a reflection of the very, very deep uh, animosity towards Donald Trump. It is the only explanation. Uh, When you look at support for single-payer health care, for instance, there was uh, a clear majority in state after state that favored it, and many of those people still voted for Biden. But here's what uh, was driving the vote. In most states, you had at least a fifth and often more who said they were angry at Donald Trump. The other 70% or more said they were very dissatisfied. Those are high numbers, uh, even among Democrats. So that's that's point two. Uh, Point three is... Uh, This is not America. This is not the American voter. There is nothing to be generalized from what's happening, um, or very little uh, that we should generalize from what happened last night for the general election. This tends to be a very liberal slice of America. Uh, The rest of the country is going to lean more moderate and conservative in this group. For instance, uh, when you look at uh, Bernie Sanders, he had a twenty two percent advantage among those who support socialism, whereas if you look at polling among Americans and registered voters about the idea of socialism, it is decidedly a negative reaction uh, ditto on, um, on on other issues. Uh, for instance, if you look at who describes themselves as liberal uh, last night two- thirds described themselves as liberal in the general elector it'll be closer to about a third um, so point being taken, this was a very unusual, um, you know, kind of cross-section of America. It's not representative. Uh, and this is going to be a battle. And I think these two candidates uh, are going to be facing each other for months on end.
0: Great. Linda, can we go to you? Sure. Um, so
2: I, I probably, my, my couple of takeaways. The first one is, um, I don't want to repeat what Larry says. I'm gonna try and focus on a couple of areas. The first thing is we often hear that the first four you know, primaries, caucuses, people read way too much into it. It's all not representative. So I found it fascinating um, that after Saturday, uh, South Carolina, you saw the dropout of Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, who then immediately threw their support to Biden. If you look on that chart, 49% of the exit polls, those who decided later, it seemed this idea of having momentum, how you, what you, who you appeal to in this, again, very small set of races, seems, seems to have made um, an impact. And I guess... This is why, if you look at why some of these earlier states um, insist on going early, there might even be some reason to it. But I still think people read way too much into the early races. But I think what's interesting about um, Super Tuesday is that some of the patterns that we're likely to see throughout the rest of the race is already evident. Um, Interestingly, um, I think he's the oldest candidate in the race, Bernie Sanders, appeals to the youngest voters. Somebody needs to explain that to me at some point. (laughs) Uh, But the, um, the ethnic Makeup is also interesting, Latinos, as you can see there, um, you know they supported um, Sanders in greater proportions than um, than African Americans... Uh, African Americans supported um, Biden. So I think some of these will be very important as we go through uh, the primary season. And and I agree. I think we're going to get to July and it's going to be a pretty long drawn-out race. And I think the second thing that I wanted to just mention is we often hear, and I, this completely comes from the 1990s, so apologies to those of you who don't remember the 1990s. Don't raise <laughs> your hands. Don't raise your hands. Um, and in the Bill Clinton um, campaign... Um, uh, there's a really f- memorable saying that came out, is the economy stupid? And that's pretty been, much been the mantra for thinking about uh, the dynamics of a presidential campaign and race. Um, Leah may know this, but I think it came from Jim Sperling when he was the... Um, James Carvel. James Carvel. So was the James Carvel, that's yeah. right. Uh-huh. And so, um, so I think this... So, so to me, it's, it's interesting. So I'm not suggesting the economy isn't important, but health care is an important issue. There's obviously been a lot around Obamacare. But the economy does tend to be important because oftentimes people do want to know how their own lives will be. Um, and we are facing um, a challenging time right now. Um, when uh, we all gathered in the green room earlier, nobody shook hands. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no. I tried to shake it. We, 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 we did. I'm reared backwards. So like, then we went well, to the bathroom to wash.
2: But I guess guess, well, I guess my my kind of my we can talk more about it but I think my quick um uh I to raise it because Um, It seemed as if in the 2020 race, the economy this year uh, was beginning to stabilize and pick up. So we were in the down part of the business cycle the last two years. Fed cut rates three times last year. Look like it was just kind of inchy. It was was stabilizing and potentially improving, which, of course, um, will benefit the incumbent, President Trump. But now it looks – Very, uh, very challenging. I don't want to scare anyone. OECD said uh, we could be headed for a global recession if coronavirus gets worse. I just said it. So, um, (laughs) and the Fed had an emergency rate cut 50 basis points yesterday, unscheduled, first time since the global crisis. I think that's going to throw up what's going to really test whether or not the economy really is, continues to be that important, um, especially, as I say, given that healthcare and the challenge to Obamacare has been such a big issue over the last few years as well.
0: Gideon. Sure. Looking out.
3: Uh, well, I mean, I think, you know, Larry said something quite interesting that he thinks that the, what was motivating the Democrats at this point is who can beat Trump. Now, if we now think that Biden is the favorite, is that the right? Uh, the right choice if, mm-hmm. you, if you want to beat Trump. I mean, uh, f- I think one thing to say about th- this race is that whoever gets the Democratic nomination, I, I suspect it's going to be incredibly close uh, because America is so polarized now that you can predict how most of the states will vote and it will come down once again to the familiar Florida, <laughs> Ohio, uh, and we know how close it was last time. So, you know... The days of massive blowouts are over. You know, the first presidential race I was a kind of sentient person following as a politically aware nine-year-old was 1972, and that was you know a yeah. total blowout—49 states, I think, for Nixon. That's that's not going to happen again. Uh, so, if it's very very close, I think uh, the Democrats face you know two different theories. One is, is the best way to beat Trump to appeal to the moderate centrist voter, the Mm -hmm. people who might have been uh, alienated by the way he's behaving, by Trump in action, and to pull them back, which I think is the sort of Biden pitch. Or is it to say, actually, what's gonna matter is turnout and motivating your base, and that what maybe defeated Hillary was that a lot of people who voted for Obama just didn't show up. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore, you maybe want a polarizing candidate, a highly motiv- motivating candidate, Bernie Sanders, about pe- whom people feel really passionate, and they're prepared to get out. Because I think that the people who back Trump, uh, by and large, feel very strongly about him, and they will turn out and vote. So, um, you know, I'm not sure how how you pitch it, but it's not obvious to me that the sort of Democratic Party uh, kind of establishment mantra that we've got to pick a centrist. is is necessarily right as a Mm -hmm. strategy Um, because if he can't generate enthusiasm uh, then Trump Trump might still win and a last thought I mean mainly hopefully get onto it but I think as the world thinks about it it was interesting talking to uh, people this morning at another event, they were saying, oh, well, maybe, you know, this Trump years will turn out just to be some weird aberration, a kind of blip, and America will go back to normal, as defined. Snap back. Uh, Yes, snap (laughs) back. And I think Biden's about the only candidate that you could make that argument for. And if it went Trump-Sanders, then you'd say we're in a completely new country, a radicalized country. Biden is obviously the inheritor of Obama and uh, of Hillary Clinton. Whether he could govern this changed America and changed world in the old fashion is another question.
0: Okay, very good.
4: Leah. All right, so I think um, the first big point is that part of what we're seeing is uh, the center strikes back, so this consolidation of the center of the United States and of all of these kind of um, different parts that we were largely told or largely led to believe or was really hidden I think in a lot of ways to the early part of the debate when there were so early part of the primaries in the debate when there were so many people competing on the stage and what we saw very rapidly in the last two weeks or so and really even in the last uh, you know 72 hours is that all of these candidates who said you know we're in it to the convention suddenly dropped rearranged and have shifted their weight I mean we were talking in the green room about how Mike Bloomberg you know is uh, uh, at some point we were still considering him as a presidential candidate, and in the time, in the in-between time, has dropped out of the race and thrown his support and his endorsement to, uh, uh, to Biden. That is a huge shift, and it's happened in a matter of, really just a matter of hours. So really, we're seeing the separation from the weed from the chaff, and I think that's really important, as the center has shown, an enormous amount of discipline in uniting behind a candidate. Um, But with that said, There's an inverse, and I I think a lot of people came out of uh, Super Tuesday thinking, wow, this is a huge, devastating blow to Bernie Sanders. And I'd actually like to push back on that and say that actually one of the things that we saw from Super Tuesday is that given all of this shift, given all of the consolidation and the discipline around the center, that we actually saw the resiliency of something like the Sanders movement. So I think it was actually, uh, you know, it's overstated to assume that Sanders had this in the bag, that this was, that he should have come out on top on Super Tuesday that, in fact, things are playing out the way that, you know, the way that we, in a lot of ways, should have expected them to, but the fact that the Sanders movement, largely propelled by Latino voters around the United States, managed to hang on and has now narrowed, uh, has really narrowed and, and changed the game to become a race between Joe Biden and between Bernie Sanders is incredibly important moving forward. And I think, as I share the rest of the panelists' points, that this is not the end of the road. In fact, this is the uh, essentially the circling of wagons around two, um, the two main characters. Now, one other thing that I'd like to throw out here is that even as you know the, the party begins to sort out who they want to support, I think it is important, and maybe we can come back to this in the, the discussion, to say how did we end up with two, you know, no offense to geriatrics, but two (laughs) geriatric white men as the face of the Democratic Party in 2020, when after 2016 we said that we needed something radically different and actually representative of the base of the party. Which brings me to my third point, which is listen to the base. And I think this is the lesson for, I think, supporters of, say, Sanders – who largely felt, again, like they felt in 2016 that they could be propelled into winning the election without the base of the party, which is black voters. And we saw up on that screen that overwhelmingly black voters chose not just Joe Biden, but when we combined Joe Biden with Michael Bloomberg, right. Right, which everyone said, no, they would never do that, that would never happen, what we actually see is that it was an important preventative measure and actually really uh, a really important part in consolidating the center. So it turns out you actually do have to listen to, say, black voters if you want to be the Democratic nominee. Now, the same thing goes, however, for Joe Biden. If you want to solidify that lead, you actually have to listen to what Latino voters are saying. And in fact, Latino voters, particularly in California, have been very vocal about the kind of outreach that the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, have failed to do and their dissatisfaction with the immigration policies of the Obama administration. And now that is showing up in the primary system. So part of what we need to be paying attention to is uh, you know, what is the base saying as opposed to what are pundits, analysts, and scholars saying from the top. And I think this was also very much the message of 2016 on the Republican side of things. And then the last point I think that I want to make is that we should be looking for the red flags Um, And I really want to stress this because there were a whole lot of red flags in the lead up to 2016, particularly in the primary system that media, journalists, even scholars largely ignored, um, including consolidation around social movements, right, on the left and the right, and turnout and enthusiasm levels, um, particularly around groups that Democrats were counting on, say like young voters or black voters or things like that. And one of the things that Democrats, if they really want to win, if they really want to beat Trump, who is really conso- has a, a base that has uh, a Republican Party that has consolidated around him, one of the things that they have to do is they have to generate Obama-level turnouts among black voters, Latino voters, uh, amongst young people, and amongst older uh, people and suburban white voters. Um, and they have to do it in swing states, and they haven't yet figured out how to do that. So look out for the red flags.
0: All right. Well, that's great. Uh, I'm going to open it up shortly, but I suppose uh, just to pick up on uh, this last point, um, not so much about the red flags, but what Sanders needs to do, what Biden needs to do. Do we have any Sanders supporters out here? I'm assuming we do. So what is it that Sanders needs to do to broaden his base? I mean, you know, is it, I mean, we're hearing a lot of, you know, I mean, part of the problem, as you point out, is with African-American voters. Part of the problem is with college-educated suburban white women. He doesn't resonate with them either. You know, uh, part of the problem is with old people. You know, they're, uh, they don't trust them. The socialist label seems to work there. What is it that he's got to do? I'm going to ask the same question, or with Biden, because Biden also, as you I think correctly point out, has to expand his own base. There are parts of demographic groups that are are, are just not in favor of him. So, what do we? If you're the campaign manager for Sanders or the campaign manager for Biden, what do you do between now and July to try to take? Win, but also to take some of the venom out of the campaign. Somebody want to jump?
3: Well, I mean, I'm get, I'll, I'll have a go at it. I mean, I think if you're Biden, you just, you look at the numbers and you think, if I get to the convention, then the superdelegates who are unpledged will swing it towards me. Uh, so I don't think he'll necessarily adjust. And on the venom point, I'm not, I'm not sure it's necessarily in their control. I mean, I remember one of the things that, you know, in retrospect, Assumes much more significance. But being at the opening of the Democratic Convention last time and the day it opened, or the two days before it opened, suddenly all these emails were were leaked, which seemed to show the Democratic National Committee plotting against Bernie Sanders. And it completely poisoned the opening day of the convention, poisoned relations which were already fairly bad between the Clinton and Sanders camp and set things off on a bad footing from which they never really recovered. And maybe a lot of those Sanders voters, you know, were alienated right then and there. But we only know in retrospect. I was looking back at an interview I did with somebody and we kind of, they said, well, maybe this was a hack from Russia, you know, and we said, God, that would be so weird, wouldn't it? And it was only later that we realized that this was really quite a significant moment. That was a key uh, Russian intervention in the, in the election. So I'm not sure it's within the, within the power of these two candidates Given the polarization of America, the polarization of the Democratic Party, all the other forces to calm things down, I think it's going to be pretty nasty.
0: Larry, you had your hand up next, and then I'll go to Linda.
1: Well, I I think I agree with Gideon that what we're looking at now is consolidation. In 12 days, there's going to be another kind of slew of elections. It's going to be places like Florida, where where, uh, Joe Biden currently has a double-digit lead. It's going to be Ohio, where where he also appears to have a lead. And it's going to be Illinois, uh, which plays to the coalition he's put together where he won in every region of the of the country when he was not supposed to be able to do this so i don't think biden's going uh, back to the drawing board Um, i do think we are going to see a a shift within the next month and the shift is going to entail beginning to identify uh, coalition partners and we'll start to see people coming forward these would be people who would Presumably, be in the running to be in the cabinet mm-hmm. uh, or play prominent roles. It's possible we're going to see an early uh, process for identifying a vice presidential candidate. I don't think we're going to see a rerun of Hillary Clinton's disastrous decision to go inside the Senate for an unknown, um, you know, uh, kind of junior uh, senator, Tim Kaine, good guy, but it wasn't what t- uh, she needed. I think instead we're going to see some pretty interesting picks, I think, um, you know, just to throw out some names. Elizabeth Warren, does that change the ticket? Um, Stacey Abrams, does that change the ticket? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, we're going to see some, I, I know there's, there are some really provocative conversations going on within the campaign. So I'm expecting consolidation. I think they have a winning formula. They're not going to be screwing around with that. And they're going to look to shift uh, in the direction of how do we beat Donald Trump? particularly after the 17th, and they're going to increasingly ignore uh, Bernie Sanders. Some of you may say, how could he do it? Look at the numbers. The numbers of the delegates that are there now, and that lead is going to expand, favors uh, Joe Biden. Okay.
0: Ignore Bernie Sanders. I know you want to respond to that. (laughs) that
2: I think for Bernie Sanders, I mean, one of the, um, you you mentioned it, Larry. Um, Being a socialist or having a socialist Um, Platform. Um, I think for a lot of people who support him, great. For others, you know, it is an issue. Um, And I think one of the, I don't know if you guys caught this, but um, Paul Krugman of the New York Times had an article that said Bernie Sanders is not a socialist. Um, And uh, his point is that he's more of a social democrat, (laughs) uh, more like what you might see, say, in Northern Europe, what you might see in terms of a big welfare state. But that label is important because a lot of the, if, if you wanted to broaden out his appeal, then adjusting that label, which has, you know, that affects everything, his economic policies, his social policies, how people might view it, the history, people's memories of um, socialism in the kind of, uh, you know, cold war, cold war and earlier sense. So that kind of thing, I think, is something that is I see little besides of it, which is why I mention it. But the challenge will be, I think Bernie Sanders' appeals is authenticity. And you see candidates who begin to adjust their message on the campaign trail, and people jump on it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it's coming from a principled place. And that's why I think it's actually very hard to shift a strategy once you're sort of down down a, down a certain road. And I'll just, uh, before I uh, hand back, I would just quickly say on Biden, I think, I found, you remember um, when Trump was up against, what, 17 Republican uh, candidates yeah. at that point? Um, yeah, and there was a hashtag, never Trump, but they just couldn't consolidate behind somebody that they thought um, could take Trump on. And I think, I, I mentioned, I was astounded a little bit at the speed at, that this democratic field after Biden's very strong win in South Carolina, where he really showed strength with suburbanites, with African American voters, uh, with older voters, how quickly the moderates sort of narrowed in um, and the dropout, um, you know, probably, I'm sure, at some, in some respects, helped him. So I guess in that sense, Biden is now being positioned, and I think he's going to get a lot of resources behind it. But I might worry about Biden is what you saw in the earlier states. I feel really weird talking about the earlier states because I always think people read too much into it. But in the earlier states, when he really stumbled in Iowa and New Hampshire, it was his ground operation. So, I, you know, so thinking about going forward, he has his support of the establishment. But as we all know, it's the ground operation. You know, that really matters, except for Mike Bloomberg, who did not go to American Samoa, um, but he had seven staff members there that won him his six delegates.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, Leah.
4: Yeah, sure. So, if I'm both candidates right now, I'm in a mad rush for getting on the phone with Elizabeth Warren, who we've kind of conveniently erased from this conversation, but Elizabeth Warren and Stacey Abrams for a couple of different reasons. One, um, I think both candidates need a 50-state strategy. There is no way to win the election without having a kind of strategy that suggests every single vote matters, despite the fact that both candidates are operating right now as if only certain subsets, right, that lead to XYZ calculation matters for this victory. But a 50-state strategy and a strategy that is also premised on building and growing your base, a la Stacey Abrams' uh, Georgia Voter Project, which is about registering and finding non-voters and actually understanding the reasons why uh, non-voters, which are the largest group, political group within the United States, don't turn out, is something that both candidates absolutely need to do. Um, The other thing is I think Elizabeth Warren is crucial and has an, an uh, incredible amount of leverage right now just, although it doesn't necessarily seem like it but has an amount of leverage right now because her presence either as an endorsement either as, you know, as uh, 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 alongside a candidate what have you Uh, uh, lends validity and legitimacy in a way that the candidates can't get themselves so you know, if I'm Elizabeth Warren right now I am negotiating the hell out of any scenario because you need me if you want to win Can I ask where do you
3: expect she'll end up with Sanders or Biden
4: I think her inclinations, her policies her friendships are more aligned with Sanders Mm. but I think in order for that to happen the Sanders campaign actually has to be willing to negotiate with her and so this is an interesting. I mean, maybe for later in the conversation about what are you willing to give in order to get what you want, which is that the Sanders campaign wants her to drop out right now. Right. Um, and then the last thing I think, actually, two more things. Second thing is an aspirational message, and I think we've been trafficking. I mean, this is not a normal election. We've been trafficking in a lot, trafficking in a lot of dark. These are dark times. But the American public does respond very well to aspirational messaging. right? Bill Clinton knew that. Barack Obama knew that. Um, even Donald Trump, in a weird, kind of, weird kind of way, you know, all test understood test. that for his particular segment of uh, the country. But I think you need an aspirational message. And the other thing, the last thing, is you need money. Money, 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 money. And money is going to be a huge driver. And so if you're Joe Biden, for example, you want that Bloomberg money. So Bloomberg may not be able to buy an election for himself, but he certainly can help Joe Biden, who does not have a lot of money in his war chest right now in terms of moving around the country and uh, being able to achieve that 50-state
0: strategy. Okay, that is great. Uh, I'm going to open it up right now and take questions. Uh, So put your hands up, and um, what I would ask you to do is just briefly identify yourself um, and keep the question Very, very short. And I'll take the woman right there in the black jersey.
3: Well, can you hear me?
0: Yes.
2: Okay. Um, I wonder what you guys think about um, Sanders being labeled as a populist. And, you know, more than one prominent
3: pundit has called him that. He is really Trump on the left. He is not a Democrat. He's not a liberal. He's just a populist. Uh, in the sense that he's going to ruin everything for us. Okay,
0: that's great. There was a
3: question right, right back
0: there in uh, um, in a grey sweater, in the middle there. Uh, <clears throat> um, Richard Turner, Kings. Um, I'd be interested to know what's happening, what, what we know about those key... Um, swing states, those people that live in the suburbs, what do we know from opinion polls? Where are they moving? Do they really dislike Trump at this stage? Could they be persuaded? What's the latest on them? Second question, if I may, um, what about Carmilla Harris for VP? Guy in the back there, he's got his hand up right now. Yeah. Yeah, I can't, it looks like you have a black t-shirt on or something, yeah, right there.
3: Hiya. Um, my question is about Trump, actually, who we haven't really talked about. No. What is Trump, what, what is the strategy to beat Trump, actually, to beat Trump? Strategy to
0: beat Trump, okay. <laughs> I don't know about them, but I got a thought about that. Um, so, let's see. How about the woman right over here? You
4: pointed out, first of all, I should say Stacey Abrams for president eventually. <laughs> but um, you pointed out that we don't have diverse candidates anywhere in the field, um, Republican, Democrat. Could the DNC have done something in terms of changing their rules to ensure that once it came down to it, there were
0: diverse candidates? Diverse candidates, okay. Um, take one more. How about the guy in the. Uh LSE sweatshirt right up here. You get something for
1: that. Uh, my name is Nico. I'm an exchange student. And I was wondering, given the political context in America, do you? F- I find it remarkable that campaigns such as Pete Buttigieg or even Joe Biden um, or even Amy Klobuchar, for that, for that matter, were labeled as moderate despite an exceptionally progressive platform with things like a $15 minimum wage, universal health universal care, you know, affordability at the college level almost to extreme amounts, you know, compared to the United States, something I very much uh, support, that given the anchoring of how f- far to the left uh, Bernie Sanders is, or at least he's been labeled, that they were called moderates when in America they are considered almost radical by the general electorate.
0: Okay. So we've got um, Sanders as a populist. What about those swing states? Strategy to beat Trump. Uh, DNC rules, could they have been adjusted to ensure greater diversity and a question about the political spectrum in the US Larry, you want to start?
1: So I'll take on two of them on the strategy to beat Trump every Democrat who's serious has already thought this through. This is a referendum election. When you're running against an incumbent, the standard playbook is this is a referendum election. If you think about Bill Clinton, it was you know, it's the economy stupid that's just a referendum election. Um, if you think about Barack Obama, it was change, change, change. That's about referendum on the incumbent. And that's what Joe Biden is doing. I think it'll become a more focus now that it's not a you know, large number of people. He is running against uh, Donald Trump. He is gonna increasingly run against Donald Trump. There's gonna be less attention on the divisions within the Democratic Party. Second point in terms of running uh, uh, against Donald Trump is Florida, Michigan and Wisconsin. Ohio is already in the Republican column. Uh, if you look at the polls and you look at what's been happening, but those three states, one-third of the voters in, that st- in those states are independent, and Donald Trump won them. And so if you're wondering, why did the, Repu- why did the Democrats go for a guy who, you know I think, by all you know, visible evidence and everything we've all seen is clearly not the top of his game. It's because of his assumed ability to appeal to those sort of voters and concerns about the others. Secondly, on what's going on in the swing voters, um, you know, I've been tracking this and it looks to me like the patterns that happened in 2008 are still in play. That is, uh, educated women and educated men have moved, even if they were you know, kind of moderate or weak Republican partisans have shifted in the Democratic direction we are seeing independents moving towards Democratic candidates this is what explains, you know if you go into, into Virginia and you look in the suburbs uh, in 2017 there were remarkable wins in, in districts that Republicans had controlled for years but it was because of these shifts and that happened all over the country in 2018 from the polling I'm looking at it's still there it hasn't changed. Donald Trump is running on the base. He's running on the same set of anti-immigrant race-baiting issues, and it really turns off the better, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but voters with higher levels of education, it's turning off women, it's turning off independents. Linda.
2: Just picking up a couple of things. Um, I think that economic conditions will really matter for a lot of the um, the Rust Belt, the, whatever you want to describe it, especially um, states which have been hurt by the U.S.-China trade war. These are voters, which, you know, it, didn't, it doesn't take um, – it didn't take a lot. I think it was, what, 80,000 votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. That was the margin for Trump. And so if you look at, I think – we're talking tens of billions now of subsidies which have been given to um, you know, farmers affected by the trade war. I think all of that is a sign of how important these voters are and why the economic conditions, I think, really will, uh, will be important. Um, they always are, as I started off um, by saying. Um, I'm really tempted by the BP question to go there, um, <laughs> but I'm just going to kind of maybe group that a little bit with the diversity question. One ethnic group that hasn't been mentioned is Asian Americans. The fastest-growing group, uh, minority ethnic group in America since 2000 is actually Asian Americans, about 6% of the population, uh, swings, you know, swings both ways. That didn't quite sound right, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> um, so, you know, I think at one point, before Bloomberg um, dropped out, there were conversations with Andrew Yang. Uh-huh. Uh, Bloomberg Yang as a ticket. Uh-huh. I just, you know, I just think that it's a lot is changing. And um, and then finally, um, I agree with what Larry said about uh, you know uh, moderates and centrists and that great question. I think the thing, I, and I don't know this, um, but I but I have been looking at it, which is who is actually in the centre anymore. In other words, you know, we know from the '90s. Oh my God, I sound so dated. In the '90s, (laughs) the third way in this country, um, the New Democrats under Clinton, there was a kind of there's a kind of movement to to the center. There seemed to be some type of consensus that people should be fiscally conservative, socially liberal, and going to a bit to the populism question, it left behind a lot of people on both ends who were not that comfortable maybe with where the center was supposed to be. And so I've been looking at whether or not there really is a center in the old sense anymore, and maybe the shift in left towards the left in the Democratic Party and the shift in, to, in the Republican Party to the right predates Trump. I'm talking Tea Party, I'm talking, you know, that branch. This has been going on for some time. So if you wanted to become your party's nominee, the old strategy was you appeal to the extremes and then you reposition yourself in the centre to win the the general election. And I just wonder if... The consensus around this is also um, just breaking down a bit, and this is why you have this, uh, the candidates that you mentioned. But anyways, I in general find labels to be quite confusing. I like to actually look at their policies. Are you for Medicare for all or not? How you pay for it? Are you for, you know, that kind of thing. But.
0: Gideon, you're writing a book on populism and nationalism.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the populist question is, is is an interesting one. A lot of people say I don't like to use the label because it's imprecise, but you know, that's 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 that's, that's life.
4: <laughs>
2: but uh,
3: but on on the, uh, I mean, I think that there is a a way of describing uh, Sanders as populist that does make sense, uh, which is essentially that he's an anti-elite candidate, mm-hmm. and that and an anti-establishment candidate going beyond the you know thing that everyone in America does, which is run against Washington, say, I hate the, the political establishment. It's a sort of, we've got to overturn the social structures, really, that there's something rotten in, in, the, in, in the, the way American society is working. And in fact, uh, I once actually, I'm afraid to say, saw Steve Bannon give a fairly cogent analysis of this, where he was talking about the the 2016 presidential election and the parallels with Britain and the Brexit vote. And he said that post the financial crisis, uh, there had been an upsurge in populism in that sense of anti-elite sentiment, and that that in both countries, there'd been a left-wing populism and a right-wing populism. In the US, the right-wing populism was Trump, the left-wing version was Sanders, and in the UK, the right-wing version was Brexit, Boris Johnson, Farage, even more, and the left-wing version was Corbyn. Uh, but that they had, um, although they had very different analyses of what, and what was going wrong, they had sprung from a similar mm-hmm. sense of disillusionment. Um, and I think that there's, there's something to that. So I think that does set certainly Sanders apart from Biden in, in his sort of portrait of America. We were talking about positivity and so on, and does that still work? And I thought one of the striking things okay, in a way, Trump was peddling a positive message, but, I mean, it was the most darkest vision of America I've ever heard in, in an carnage. inaugural American carnage, absolutely. And similarly, Sanders is not saying we're the greatest country on earth, right. our best days lie ahead. I mean, it's, it's, this is things have gone really badly wrong and we've got to change very radically. And that's where I think just briefly on this question of where the center is, you're right, the center's shifted. So they're only centrist in the sense that they're, they're a bit to the right of... Where Sanders is. But I do think that, you know, somebody was saying, well, Sanders is kind of, in, in European terms, just a social democrat. I think to some extent, from what I know of his platform, he's actually significantly to the left of, you know, even Corbyn's Labour Party. If you look at his proposals on health care, to abolish private health care, to make it illegal, uh, that would be, you know, you wouldn't even suggest that in the UK. Right.
4: So um, I'm going to try and tackle the the question about what can the DNC do about diverse candidates and also the Kamala Harris VP, but also I think thinking more broadly about VPs of um, color. So the first thing is, uh, you know, the reality of the power of the DNC is far less sexy than I think that we would like to give it credit for. Um, You know, Tom Perez is not this omnipotent person who is controlling the strings behind the scene, that in fact, in a lot of ways, the voters are the ones who choose who they want their candidates to be. And so I think you have to start from there and thinking through, you know, what are the what are the reasons why, say, Latino voters might be more radical on this issue and that thus might reject XYZ candidate? Why might black voters be more pragmatic on this issue and therefore choose this candidate? Why are we thinking, you know, why are young voters gravitating, I think this was actually the question on the panel, why are young voters gravitating towards you know, a man who's 78 years old? It's not because he's 78 years old, it's because of the ideas that he's espousing and the kind of movement that he Is trying to coalesce around, right? Thus, uh, the Sanders movement. So I do think there are a couple of things that the DNC can do. And we did see this a couple of years ago when they tried to reformat some of the rules around, say, superdelegates, um, which they claim is not their term. It's a term that gets put on them. But the actual change, changing of superdelegates that we're seeing now was supposed to be designed in order to give more more effect to candidates on the ground. The other thing that we could see is pouring money, um, uh, the DNC, whenever possible, pouring money or choosing to support candidates of color on the ground who tend not to have the same kind of networks, same kind of access to donors that white candidates do. So pouring your support rather than saying, you know, oh, I don't think this candidate could win, I don't think this candidate has a shot in hell, saying, you know, how can we strategically use our money to pump money into this and back supporters? And in fact, I think we did see that in the 2018 uh, 2018 midterms, that a number of organizations, but also the DNC poured money. They poured a lot of effort into Stacey Abrams, for example, both in positioning her for uh, being the face, one of the new faces of the party, but also in terms of her um, uh, electability. And then the last thing that I'll say is that it actually does matter to some extent, although we don't know, the ideas that these candidates have. So Kamala Harris, for example, you know, was not popular um, amongst African American voters, Latino voters, women voters, a whole slew of voters for various reasons but she was a diverse candidate that was in the race. Cory Booker could not gain traction with the same group that we would assume to support them for a whole host of reasons. Julian Castro, who probably had, you know, had one of the most well thought out um, agendas and policy platforms of any of the candidates in the races, could not get traction. And one of the things that we have to ask is, what is, it for, what is the disconnect for voters on the ground that is, saying, that is suggesting that these voters, that they are unwilling to support diverse candidates and candidates of color. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, we've got time for like one more round, I think, here. Um, we'll take this woman right up here in the front, I'll come back in a second.
2: Hi, thank you. Uh, Elizabeth from LSE. Uh, could you talk a bit more about uh, black voters, because um, commentators are talking about them as a sp- as a homogeneous group, and I was wondering is there any difference between black voters in the south who have massively supported Biden mm-hmm. and black voters uh, in the rest That's of the sure. country? Thanks.
0: Okay. Um, how about the guy over there in the white turtleneck?
3: <clears throat> Hi, I'm Paul. I'm an epidemiologist at UCL probably guessed my question. Um, so I don't think it's unreasonable to think that by the end of the year, 10, maybe 20% of uh, US citizens will have been infected with the coronavirus at some point. Um, that has a real serious human cost, but also economic repercussions, as Linda alluded to earlier. So therefore, I think any political analysis for the rest of the year, outside of the context of the coronavirus lens, um, is particularly, it might even be irrelevant. So my questions following from that are, one, does the coronavirus outbreak favor Biden or Sanders? And and two, what happens in the very, the not impossible scenario that the CDC recommends at the July Convention does not go ahead?
0: (laughs) Okay, that's a good one for you guys to think about. Uh, (laughs) How about the gentleman over here in the hat? Um, (laughs) Hi, Matt. I'm an exchange student from Berkeley. Um, So, talking about the power of the DNC, what happens if we go to a contested convention and uh, the young voters' candidate is ruled to be not the nominee? What's the future of the Democratic Party after that if a large percentage of of voters decide to not move forward with that party? Okay. And I I suppose just one last question. So, Paul Bagala, Bill Clinton's uh, one of his Sven uh, from long ago, has predicted that Trump is going to drop Pence and make Nikki Haley his yes. VP. And he said it's going to happen. It's going to happen on the day that the Democrats pick their candidate in July. Okay, Larry, we'll start with you again and come back down.
1: So I've heard this rumor since, well, for six months. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like every time the news cycle's Red going, by going getting a little slow, they just toss it in the fire well, to, yeah. uh, to get it going. You know, I think if we stand here and try to predict Donald Trump's thinking,
4: <laughs> behavior,
1: we're sunk. Good point. Um, it, In terms of the DNC, you know, I think this is, a, this is a difficult issue. And, you know, if you look at the exit polls, what you'd see is between 11 and about 16 percent Of the exit poll respondents said that they would not vote for a Democrat um, if it wasn't theirs. Now, here's what's interesting: in 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 about the states are split in terms of whether that that percent were Biden supporters responding to um, uh, a Sanders candidacy or the reverse. So this is a really volatile stage, and emotions are running high, intensities high. I called up my sister because I'm living in Oxford and I thought it'd be nice to talk to a, a loving family member and it ended with her yelling at me <laughs> for literally the same things I just mentioned a little while ago um, when we get out into October and November the choice is going to be about does the planet survive I mean that's how stark it's going to be for, and I'm not saying well I would say, that I think that is on the ballot and I think under those conditions there will be a few percent who actually are just so alienated, so disgusted, they don't turn out. Um, but I think there's going to be a pretty high turnout. I think the questions that are being raised about uh, turnout from Hispanics um, and uh, people of color more generally is a very real one. And I think it's why we're going to see uh, Joe Biden pretty quickly you know, within the next month pivoting away from this fratricidal dispute with Bernie Sanders that rips apart the Democratic Party and instead starting to identify what this diverse coalition, what the, uh, the kind of Obama coalition version two would look like, and starting to kind of look at VP candidates with lots of leaks to the press to get us all uh, juiced up.
0: Nikki <laughs> Haley might be available. Um,
2: um, I think I have to take the coronavirus one. <laughs> yeah. um, So I guess a couple of thoughts here. So one would be, if the coronavirus led to people self-quarantining to prevent the spread, working from home, are you more likely, do you think people are more likely to vote for Sanders or Biden, having never met them? We made that joke about Bloomberg before, (laughs) you know. So in other words, is the you know, which one of them might do better might depend on who actually has that more compelling message that doesn't... Because a lot of politics is retail, but, you know, the Sanders movement is very much based on ideas. There's a, you know, there's a lot of support for that. Does Biden generate, you know, is it does he need to meet people? I guess that's one question. It's an open question because he won states he didn't actually go to here, like, you know, unexpectedly. So, um, and I guess the second thing is, early voting uh, completely, I'm reading too much into where we are now early voting um, would probably benefit Sanders more than Biden and that's what we saw in the exit polls. People who made up, 49% of the people who made up their vote uh, made up their mind late uh, voted for um, Biden and some of the um, you know, interviews of people, they made up their minds in the last few days um, about Biden. So again, with the coronavirus, if that prevents, um, you know, the kind of usual campaigning, um, people may not have a chance to make up their minds late. Does that actually disadvantage Biden? I'm just, I'm, you know, this is all unknown territory. But I guess, you know, I guess finally, um, to me, the biggest issue with coronavirus is the uncertainty of it. So we just don't you probably know. <laughs> the rest of us jo- just don't know what it means economically and I still maintain that I think when it comes to November how the economy is mm-hmm. will matter a lot and that will be you know hugely why Trump was really pushing for a rate cut, really pushing for So the, to me the general election will hinge on how this plays out and whether or not really a seasonal, in which case we could have a recurrence in the autumn. All of these things, I think, would be very, uh, would change the scales in terms of the.
0: Race. So we're coming right up to the bewitching hour, but I want to give each one of you a yeah, I'll be time. quick
3: then. So uh, I think the coronavirus probably helps Sanders, actually, in the sense that it might help legitimize his argument for more state control of the health system because one of the things we know now is that people are not getting tested because it's gonna cost them a lot of money. Um, and so the argument for a more interventionist state I think is strengthened.
4: Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll answer the question. I think the question about black voters is actually really important. Um, I think media scholars and journalists treat them as a monolith and uh, treat them as homogenous when in fact they do so at their own peril, that they are radically different, that there are regional differences, that there are class differences, there are extreme gender differences. Black men, for example, are more susceptible to Trump's outreach efforts and to stay home, right, so depression tactics, than, say, black women who have been the backbone of the Democratic Party since the 1960s. Um, so part of, what, part of what you're seeing, and I think there's a lot of question, a lot of people saying, we don't quite understand how black voters, say, supported somebody like Biden or even supported somebody like Bloomberg. One of the things I think you do have to understand is that we're looking through the South and you're looking at through the behaviors of the South, And black voters overwhelmingly said, we don't trust white people to do the right thing. Therefore, we are going to vote with the option and the known quantity and the one that is associated with Obama. (laughs) And I think this is an important distinction that, again, if you don't pay attention to, is something that you risk just completely blowing up. But
0: I know we're short on time. I I wanted to say that Leah gets the last word because that's a powerful point. But she doesn't. You get the last word. So we are going to, let's see, how do I get to the vote? There it is. So here are your choices. Oh. oh. So you've got, you've got Joe Biden. Tulsi she hasn't pulled out yet. She is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain C in one second. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, still in. Oh. Thanks. What can you say about Donald Trump? There's Donald Trump. Nancy Pelosi is in. If you think it's going to be a contested convention, it has to be an old person. Yeah. So it will be Nancy Pelosi. So you all have a couple of minutes to cast a vote, and then you need to remember to return yeah. the yeah. device when you're leaving.
1: Oh. What are the Trump people. So obviously, like
0: we're going to do a quick
1: Trump the, people, I would have reversed that question. Said, like "What's Trump's strategy to win?" I think that's the really. <laughs> see, the Trump vote, that came out right away because they knew who they're going to support before they came here. I wish they had spoken more though. I really, I
0: thought the audience
3: would.
0: I okay, well, so what this really shows us? I
3: suppose it's who they think rather than who they want.
0: It is going to be a close election. <laughs> I want to thank all of you for coming out this evening. Please join me in.